everyone, and welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and as always, you can find us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching Medium Cool Pod. That's facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram and we'll pop up, and at Medium Cool Pod on, on Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Also, be sure to subscribe or follow wherever you're listening to this. It really helps us out. Leave a rating or review, whether you like us or not. Don't really care. Just would love to have your feedback. Really appreciate you for listening. All that said, I'm going to jump into this real quick so that this is, uh, well, this is just going to be a long episode. But, you know, uh, Joe and I talked about the Batman for two hours last week. This week, Matthew Sosi and I talked about three movies in the same amount of time. What the hell? Anyways, uh, Kira Kurosawa's birthday is tomorrow uh, as of the day this drops. And uh, it is uh, March 23rd. Of course, Kurosawa's been dead for quite a while, but uh, his his his, uh, his greatness lives on in his films. And so we uh, we went ahead and watched the Shakespeare trilogy that he did. It's Throne of Blood, uh, The Bad Sleep Well, and Ron, all of which are you know spread out across his work too. One's in the 50s, one's in the 60s. Granted, they are only three years apart. And then uh, the final one was in '85. Uh, but these are really awesome movies. So glad that I was able to revisit them. Uh, and we are going to jump in. I, I wanted to do this because it was actually Matthew Sosi's idea. Because he's a big stage guy. And I mentioned Kurosawa. And he's like, dude, I would love to do the Shakespeare trilogy. And hey, guess what? We did it. All right? We did it. So anyways, uh, we're going to go ahead and jump into it then. Uh, I hope you enjoy. I hope you get a chance to watch these three movies. I would recommend them all. But I'll tell you to what degree I will. You know, because these are not void of uh, of nitpicks and criticisms for me. Uh, but we have a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Um, you know, I'm going to be having some guests on over the next couple of weeks. And also, uh, Matt, uh, Joe and I are going to have some fun. So stick around for the outro, and I'll tell you a little bit more. But for now, let's go see what Matt's up to. All right, everybody, we're here with Matthew Sosi. Say hello, Matthew. Austin, hello, you egg sucking dog. That's, <laughs> that's that's a term of endearment. He knows why. Because that <laughs> yeah. we, before we went on the air, we we warm up with talking about wrestling from different generations. That's that's how this show happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because wrestling rules. Uh, so today <laughs> I have I have Matthew on here because he and I were talking about different filmmakers we'd love to talk about last time we had a show together, and one of them was Kurosawa. And he mentioned wanting to do uh, the Shakespeare trilogy that Kurosawa did. Yeah. And since Kurosawa's birthday is tomorrow, March 23rd, we're recording this a little earlier than that, but it That's comes out right. tomorrow when this drops. Uh, I thought, wow, whenever I finally do a Kurosawa marathon, I can at least knock out three of these so I don't have like 40 billion movies to watch. Um, and I'm excited about this. So we're going to be talking about uh, The Bad Sleep Well and Ron. But first, we're going to talk about Throne of Blood. This is the 1957 Akira Kurosawa film based on the William Shakespeare play Macbeth. Of course, liberties were taken. And um, Toshiro Mifune stars in this film. Uh, released January 15th, 1957 in Japan, but not until November 22nd, 1961 here. Thanks, and, uh, Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, and it is uh, it is streaming on HBO Max and the Criterion Channel. So this is something uh, anyone can check out. Dude, I watched my yeah. Criterion Blu-ray Absolutely. because why wouldn't I? And by um, the way, um, Criterion, 
You know that great box set you did of Bergman? You know that really good box set you did of, of uh, Fellini? Fellini? We, we would like a giant-ass Kurosawa box set. We will pay for it. We'll wait till the 50% off flash sale happens, but we would really pay for that. Thank you. Take my money. So you That's all I have yeah, to say about it. Shut up and take my money, I believe, is the future <laughs> of that. We just need, a, we need that Blu-ray... Uh, 100-year box set or whatever. Seriously! Yeah, but uh, so uh, Throne of Blood is uh, basically, uh, you know, returning to their Lord's Castle, Samurai Warriors, Washizu, and Miki, uh, I think it's uh, Miki, uh, are waylaid by a spirit who predicts their futures. Yeah, the by first the way, part- I'm sorry, by the way, pardon our Japanese in advance. We're we're ugly oh, Americans and it's going to be terrible. We, we we are sorry. But yes, by the pricking of their thumbs, something wicked this way comes. Instead of <laughs> instead of three witches, we get one soothsayer who's who's basically saying you're going to be king. And and the guy playing. And that's the other thing. We're going we're gonna to mix Japanese names with Shakespeare names. Get a book. We're going to be you're going to be fine. <laughs> Um, but you know, you're going to be king. No, I'm not. No, you are. No, I'm not. Only better written because it's Shakespeare and it's Kurosawa. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, as Matthew just said, I mean, the first part uh, of the Spears prophecy comes true whenever Washizu uh, scheming wife Asaji presses him to speed up the rest of the Spears prophecy by murdering his lord (laughs) and usurping his place. Now, director Akira Kurosawa's uh, resetting of William Shakespeare's Macbeth in feudal Japan is one of the most acclaimed films that he made uh, with gorgeous locations, set pieces and performances by, you know, namely Toshio Mifune. This film will never be forgotten, I'm sure. And yet, though I really actually liked this film, I liked it a lot more than the first time I saw it like 15 years ago. Um, it is like a lesser Kurosawa for me personally, and I'll be excited to kind of talk through that with you a bit because it's still really good, and that just tells you how good Kurosawa is. Yeah. Uh, but uh, for it being one of like my lesser Kurosawas, um, you know, this is kind of a killer movie. They don't make them like they used to kind of a thing. Now, Matthew, my question for you is, where does Throne of Blood rank for you? You don't literally have to give you me a make, ranking. You want me to no, do no, no, a no. list. God <laughs> no, damn it. You no, want me you to do a list. How dare you, sir? <laughs> well, what I mean is, is it an unequivocal Kurosawa classic or just kind of another one of the good I, ones? I I think most of his films are, I think I think most of his films before Rashomon, or I'd say after Rashomon, you could, from, from Rashomon till about Redbeard, you could you could put those in any order you want. I seriously think that. I mean, uh, you know, Ron would Ron would get thrown into the mix Kagamusha to a certain degree, uh, and then all the stuff from the forties, except for maybe something like Stray Dog. You know, I think it's 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 like um, you know, it's like the basketball tournament. So I know there's seedings and seeds and all that stuff, but. It could go. It could go either way because some people absolutely will will die on the hill of the Seven Samurai. Some will die on Ukuru. It it depends, I think, on what type of story you like to say. But I really, I dig Throne of Blood for a couple of reasons. It's it's Macbeth. Macbeth is Shakespeare's shortest play, and this is the shortest film we're going to talk about. So there, so there, yeah. there is that aspect of it. Um, but I think the, the, the famous moments in Macbeth 
are really used in these. And we mentioned instead of three witches, we have an old dude with a spindle, with a spinning wheel who's singing. He still brings the creepiness aspect to it. Um, Isuzu Yamada, who is basically Lady Macbeth, is great in this. And and as terrible as is, it's a, it's it's a very similar kind of almost kabuki makeup. Is, is she almost looks like the woman in Ron, who is not this who's not this actress, but also has some Lady Macbeth intentions about her. We'll get to Ron in a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, but the the visual aspects of it are great. It's you know, anybody who bitches about black and white really needs to be throttled heavily. There's so yeah. many, there's more than 50 shades of gray. <laughs> um, and I, and I think Kurosawa was one of those kind of where even better than Bergman, where he's equally as great in black and white as he is in color. And uh, he's able to find those shadows and light and, um, I'm, I'm looking through my notes and I can't wait till we get to the ending. Cause that's another aspect of it, of the, they don't make them like they used to. We, we know there was, I am we know there was stuff, by that thing. We know there's stuff flying through a wall maybe, but we also knew that there are, there are actual archer dudes shooting at this actor. We, you couldn't do that today. I get it. I understand that, but there is a little badassery about God. That's really intense. The end is so intense. We'll get there we'll, we'll uh, get to for we'll sure, get to for sure. Uh, but yeah, this is a really bizarre movie. And I, I like that uh, Kurosawa in all three of these. Um, but we're going to talk about uh, Throne of Blood here. I like that he actually brings in the Japanese culture. Totally. You know? Oh, because yeah. like Because you talk about the three witches becoming the one, but the one is more of a forest spirit. Yep. You know what I mean? Like that kind of Japanese forest spirit rather than like three witches, which they, they translate very well, but it's, uh, I just love, that is one of my favorite things. That's actually the only thing I remembered from this movie because I owned the Blu-ray, but I just never watched it again wow. until now. Okay. And the only thing I remembered was the end. I apologize. The end of course is unforgettable, no, uh, cool. but the first time he runs into the forest spirit at the very beginning, that scene is so awesome. I love oh. the way it's lit. I love the way like how the, the four spirit just seems like some sort of uh, like he's made of light or something because it's yep. just so white. Well, and, and the aspect of it is you forget it's not in a studio, which we're going to get to yeah. with another film that came out last year. But but I'm going through my notes and I remember this. This was something I had heard for the first time when we have who is basically Lady Macbeth, but hearing her kimono drag on the ground. I mean, that's that's there's a great argument about, you know, yes, you can watch it in your living room and you can watch it in the theater. But and it sound in the fact that I, I discovered the sound in my living room, which means it would really haul ass in the theater. But just again, hearing a, a kimono drag on a wooden floor adds to this dimension. Um, yeah, it was it was really it was really cool. Yeah, it's uh, it. Something that I'll say time and time again is Kurosawa is in that um, in that tier of filmmakers like a Hitchcock or like even though I'm not even a huge John Ford fan, I got to give him credit, man. John yep. Ford is in this where these guys are just great storytellers. Yep. You know what I mean? And so it's like even if you're not super into the movie, it's one of those things where or, or you don't like the way it looks or you don't like this or that. You just get drawn in. Yeah. So like this movie, for example, opens so great. I love the opening. And then there's a part in the middle where it and and I'm not saying I hate whenever people are like, this movie's too slow. I don't feel that oh, way. Shut up. Right. I don't like, 
yeah, I don't feel that way. But but it it really it dips for me, kind yeah. of in that middle section, and then the last third of it or whatever just picks up again for me because you get more of that four spirit, you get more of that, you get that big ending. But yeah. my point in saying this is. Even though I felt, and of course I was watching it at like eleven o'clock at night or something, you know what I mean? Like, so it's like kind of my fault, I guess. Shame on me. But like, I'm watching it and I could just really feel the dip in that middle. But sure. that story just kept me going. Right. You know what I'm saying? Because no, he's I, that good of a storyteller. And I'm with you on that. And I think that that's another part of another generation of film doors or, or your own film taste. Of, um we we are expected for things to happen right out of the gate huge and i i go back to one of my great this is when i realized one of the moments i realized i was not like the others where in college i went to i went to ball state in the late 80s early 90s and i remember trying to show friends in the dorm the exorcist and if you really think about the and, and they're waiting for the blood, they're waiting for the gore, they're waiting for the horror. It really doesn't kick in until about 45 minutes. But we had been trained. We had been uh, we'd been thrown upon us because of the slasher movies. You have to have blood bloodshed by the first five, 10 minutes of the movie. And, and so yeah. the fact that. You have I'm sorry, you, that you have this film that takes its time. The other films are longer because it takes its time. Um, you just have to wait for the freaky shit to kick in. And and there's there there have been times that I've critiqued the film by saying it's a slow paced film, but it's not a slow film. Yeah, I think that's fair to say about Throne of Blood too. I would compare this to, uh, for me, and and I loose comparison. These are not actually one for one movies at all. Right. But uh, just about the pacing. Um, you know, it reminds me of some of the Bergman stuff that I watched mm-hmm. where it's like, you know, it's it it is slow paced, but I never feel I don't really feel it as much because I'm invested. Yeah. You know what I mean? Kind of like what you were saying. And I would put this in there, but I don't feel that way about the other two. That's why I bring this up. Sure. Um, because that is something that did stand out to me, though. Uh, but like I said, I watched this for the first time like 15 years ago or something or more. And I, this was definitely one of my least favorite Kurosawa's, you know, at the time. And I'd seen a lot of them because Kurosawa was one of the few guys that Criterion just put a ton of stuff out oh, on early. Thank you, Criterion. Yeah. And so I was watching all of it through Netflix when I used to get discs. So however long ago that was, yeah, uh, was was this. But man, you know, one thing I really love about this movie, too, and I don't know if this, you know, uh, stood out to you or not, but is the music. Yeah, I think the music is used so well in this because you get that classic off putting and, and, you know, you a string instrument and maybe one flute or something of that kind. Very simple and to the point and off putting. You don't hum the shit when you get when you leave the theater. (laughs) I don't even know if it's possible to hum it. Right. Yeah. It's like so bizarre and random at times, but it's uh, it really hits. I really particularly like it's like uh, whenever uh, Washizu, which I th- I believe, if I'm not mistaken, is Mifune. Uh, yeah, it is. Um, so uh, when Washizu finally sees the ghost, if I remember correctly, maybe my memory's failing me, but I'm pretty sure you get those sharp kind of punctuation yes. musical notes. Yeah. Um, and he does that in like all of these movies pretty much. But and, I just bad, love that little touch. Bad. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the one of the other great moments that that is that they do from Shakespeare is the banquet, where he's he's supposed to have a banquet. He's supposed to imply it to everyone that things are going well, and he has and he sees the ghosts of the people he has murdered at his dinner. 
he's flipping out. Lady Macbeth is saying, no, everything's fine until it's completely out of control. And she, you know, they, they, they cancel the party. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's great that it's just like a hand, a couple of instruments that put that much anxiety into you. It's um, this is 1957. If I'm watching a Hollywood film from the fifties, if my, my wife doesn't even have to be in the screening room, she can hear it down the hallway of a bombastic orchestrated score. Yeah. And she'll say to me in the hallway, you're watching something from the fifties. Yeah. Are they, they're kissing right now, aren't they? Cause you get that really right. bubbly <laughs> music. Yeah. Big yeah, thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This dude, you know, like I said, I only remember two scenes the first time they run into the forest spirit and the end. And that scene you just brought up, I actually have a note. I'm glad you did because I just I put I wrote basically out that scene and I just put what the fuck. Um, it's whenever Washizu has that little banquet yep. and he sees the forest spirit in the room and he starts freaking out. Can anyone freak out as well as Mifune? I, you know what? I, I I think I've said this a couple of times, but I honestly believe I believe Shiro Mufuni was the first person that had a wallet that said bad motherfucker on it. <laughs> He's awesome. He's <laughs> just amazing. And and please, friends, w- there are international actors that that came to Hollywood and they did a handful of f- films. And so did Mufuni, not necessarily starring in him, but he was a part of him. Don't look at his Hollywood input. Look at his his work in Japan as Especially with Kurosawa. I just, yeah. I recently watched a film called Sword of Doom, which is a non Kurosawa film with Tashiro Mifune. And it's about a samurai warrior who go who dives into madness. It is not. We Mifune. are definitely going to talk about the Sword of Doom when we get to Ron. I'm just Fuck saying. Yeah. But, but <laughs> it's one of my all time favorite samurai movies. Yeah. Mifune was just a beast. He was absolute an absolute badass between Rashomon and the seven samurai and this film and, and uh, high and low, just, just great. And uh, yeah. So the fact that, that he gets, this is one of the great roles in the Shakespearean canon and he gets to do his own version of it. And the other thing is with, with Japanese films is um, there's there's a term for film critics like to use where the acting style is described as operatic. That means over the top. And I think people are, today's audiences, you damn kids on our yard, on our (laughs) lawn, you're not used to heightened melodramatic styles of acting. And that is what's happening in this, especially when we get to the end. And we're not used to, it, you know, imagine a reality show, but cinched up two or three notches. That's yeah. kind of the style well, of acting that's happening in here. This and Kabuki. I was able to really uh, kind of hammer down why I had a hard time with Japanese films early on. Mm-hmm. I've actually still never from beginning to end watched Seven Samurai again since the first time I saw it. And I need to. Yeah, I'm waiting do, for do this marathon. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm waiting for this marathon for me to do uh, so I can rewatch all of uh, like the kind of the heavy hitters. Um, but it's one I've just all I own it. I have the Blu-ray it's like there. I'm ready for it. I just haven't. <laughs> I just had other priorities. And so uh, but the reason I want to do that so much because I actually really like Seven Samurai. So I can only like it more. Yeah. And I've seen like Yojimbo a billion times. I love yeah. that movie. High and low. You already mentioned Bad Sleepo, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, these are movies that I've always loved. But the thing, the thing is, like, 
think about how much of a problem people have, say, even watching something like It's a Wonderful Life, like that old fashioned acting. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? The yep. old Hollywood acting. And but then so take that and then also add Japanese culture to it. Totally. Right? totally. So it's like two parts removed from contemporary viewers. And a lot of people have a hard time, even me in like the mid two thousands struggled a little bit with it. I love it now because because what you have to learn to take from it's the storytelling. And sometimes yep. the storytelling is a billion times better than more kind of method, realistic acting, or however you want to say that, of today. Like, this sort of storytelling can be vastly more impactful if you just give it a chance. Yep. You mentioned It's funny you mentioned that because I, I've directed It's a Wonderful Life four times as a, as a radio play. I did this at uh, Anderson University. I also did it in Richmond once. I also got to act in it um back in 2020 in uh, in richmond and i remember saying to my actors because they were they were college students um we're, we're doing it as a 1940s radio play you're gonna say shit like gee whiz and hot dog and you know all <laughs> this but you have you have to do it completely straight you can't have a twinkle in your eye or a sense of sarcasm nothing because that's how they wrote back then and when it comes to the Japanese film styles, um, take it for what it's worth. But I was of a generation. I remember when Saturday Night Live came on the scene in 1975. Yeah. And as yeah, as weird as it sounds, John Belushi's samurai sketches. That was our introduction of you, you know, you 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 wear the classic garb, you talk really intense and really heightened, and you're willing to take a blade to someone else or yourself. If things go wrong, and that was that was kind of Japanese cinema 101 from of all places, John Belushi and Saturday Night Live. Take that for what it's worth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's. You're spot on. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you here now. Now, I, I, I want to uh, jump a little bit here. Sure. First thing, uh, the female lead, the the character that is Lady Macbeth. I think it's Asaji, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, cool. Because uh, I, I probably butchered Yamada. Yeah, I says Yamada. Uh, yeah, it's uh, man. There is something incredibly haunting about this character, especially because I believe her teeth are just blacked out. Am I Pro- mis- yeah, am I wrong? It was just she's like the scariest character in any of these movies. Yeah, <laughs> that we're gonna talk about today. Like what? what how, how does that work? Because I something I'm curious think, about asking you is uh, I'm I'm curious about also not only how you felt about this in the film, but also how this almost like translates to the play as well. Because as we talked about before we started recording, like I know you are much more familiar with the play sides of right. this than me. So yeah, give me give me your take on this Asaji, this female lead. There's two things on this aspect. One, I mean, Lady Macbeth is one of the great female characters in the Shakespeare canon. I, I, I don't know an actress who doesn't want to play Lady Macbeth. And if you, if they don't, that's really on you. Um, it's, it's a great role because of the dynamic of it, the aspect, and we'll, we'll get to, there's some, there's another similar great Macbeth moment that happens with Lady Macbeth later in this film. The other part is if you're talking about Japanese culture, Japanese women are supposed to be subservient and obedient and loyal and obey and all of that. And the fact that you have this woman controlling her husband, I mean, it's, 
it's funny because in the last year or so, the term gaslighting has become part of the uh, the vernacular, even though that's a movie from the forties. Um, and and but <laughs> but I think there's that aspect. I was I was just doing a podcast before this, and we were talking about. Um, at the time of the recording was St. Patrick's Day. And we were talking about Irish culture and and also movie culture because in the 30s and 40s, you could do a gangster movie where a guy will slap a dame and nobody thinks of it twice. And that's true. And it's a hard time doing that today. But to balance that in the 1940s, you had film noir. You had a woman that was pulling all of the strings and the and the you know aggressive physical dope who was going to go down the drain, and Lady Macbeth. Lady Macbeth is about as film noir as you get. Yeah. Of of controlling her husband, getting him to get the crown, and then and then she goes through an incredible amount of guilt, even more so quickly than her husband, because of the great scrubbing scene. So, but I, yeah. but I think that that's, that's another great example, Austin, of, of how Japanese culture and Shakespeare are really parallel when it comes to that. Yeah. I mean, uh, it was no secret. Kurosawa was very outspoken about um, Shakespeare being one of his favorite authors, period. And uh, so you get, a, you, you can actually see, I think, in even uh, several other of his movies, uh, like the influence, they aren't directly one for one, like this is where. He's clearly trying to do his take or a depiction of uh, an existing work, but uh, you can definitely see it. And uh, I love that that she exists. There's a great moment when Asaji, uh, I think this is probably what you were, were talking about, but in the, my notes I go, the wife goes crazy. <laughs> um, because, yeah. it's, um, you know, earlier in the film, both of them, unlike the tragedy of Macbeth or other depictions, where they show the murder of the king, and this they don't. You just see uh, Wasaji uh, come in with his blood on his hands, and then she has blood on her hands, and they literally, literally. have blood on their hands. You know what I mean? Yes, like literally. literally. Proper use um, of the term literally. <laughs> yeah, like literally. Yeah, so they, they have uh, blood on their hands, but late there's a point later when the wife really starts to kind of lose it. Yeah. And when she started, you talked about the scrubbing scene. This is another part of my notes, so we should just jump over there. Sure. I know this is much later in the movie, but I found this, again, quite haunting. This character really kind of gripped me, this Asaji, because I feel like every scene that she's in, I never know what's going to happen. Even though I kind of know what Macbeth is, like, I'm like, what are you going to do? And that scrubbing scene is intense. You want to talk a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, and 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 this is this is a this is a just a part of the show. I mean, she is scrubbing her hands. She she still sees the blood even though it's not there. And I mean, this is a common occurrence in in the play of Macbeth. The other part that can be used in in interpretations of the play and they do it in this of the fact that the wife is pregnant and it, and they have a baby that's stillborn. That is yeah. it in I've seen productions of William Shakespeare's Macbeth Worth. that is used at the beginning as motivation. We don't have an heir. You know, we don't have somebody we, we don't have a child that could take the throne. Now we have to take it. Um, I think I think this is the part of the show now where we bring up Joel Cohen's film, because in their story, you have two aging characters and this is their last grasp to get the throne. Yeah. Um, the fact that it's, it's, it's Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand in Joel Cohen's film, the tragedy of Macbeth. Um, traditionally 
Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are are younger than us. Um, and the fact that the, the, he is turned down for the throne and the wife talks him into it because this is just another uh, another piece of business as far as is uh, is him getting power. But in the case of the Joel Cohen film, and I think in this one, because the baby is stillborn, I'm like, no, you got to get it now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I strongly encourage side note, strongly encourage yeah. all listeners uh, to, if you don't already get a one month subscription to Apple plus <laughs> and then cancel Apple TV plus, and you can cancel if you want, but watch the tragedy of Macbeth. I've already so put it good. over on this, on this so, uh, so podcast and yeah. it did make my top 10 in the end. So it Excellent. did change. And, and I talked about this. It's very, very good. Um, if for no other reason, watch it for the witches. I'm just saying. Yeah, all right. I, I have to. I have to say this about the witches. So the okay. witches in the tragedy of Macbeth are done by one actress, which I thought was a great touch because traditionally the witches in in Shakespeare's Macbeth comes in threes, and this one they have one actress playing all three of them. I, I wish I could remember her name because I don't have. Well, it I'm looking it up right now because she's the greatest of all time. But before doing this. I got to see her in a uh, a screening, a national theater live production of a Midsummer Night's Dream, where she played Puck, and it's it's it was directed by Julie Taymor. The production, God, this was probably seven eight years ago. It's done on a almost like a fashion show runway. It's kind of a narrow narrow stage, and the woman is is a contortionist. And she's able to utilize that to play Puck. And she's also, I'm a gentleman, I shouldn't say a woman's age, but she's probably in her then 40s, now 50s, whatever. The fact that it's not a young woman and she's able to contort herself and adjust herself. And she was great as Puck. And I love the fact that she got to play the the three weird sisters in in yeah. in tragedy macbeth uh catherine hunter i Thank said you. this when, yes. I, when i when i did the uh review for this um i said she was the best part of the movie and it's not even just because it's the cool part it's literally her performances because she plays the old man as well that's right and, <clears throat> and the thing is like both just the way she speaks it's so fluent you know what I mean? And it's so perfect. Uh, I got to put her over. But anyways, back to Throne of Blood here. Yes, please. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, where am I going here? Um, we, we've done the scrubbing. We've done the banquet. We might well, get yeah, so to the to the minutes at the end. We're going to get to the uh, trees moving and the yes. arrows in a second. <laughs> but uh, I do have one more thing I want to say before we kind of start to finish, wrap this one up so we sure. can move on to the next is... There is, uh, I miss movies that actually are shot on location at times with huge numbers of extras. Yep. There are like a yep. bajillion people in this movie and there it feels are. so different. And Seriously. I mean, it just grows. Like when we get to Ron, it's like ridiculous, you know, well, but I know I, I, here's a film I, I say is a guilty pleasure. But uh, but but Wolfgang Peterson's Troy was the first time I noticed where you can have a camera over a CGI beach and it's control C, control C, <laughs> control C. Like you're just you're just pasting ex digital extras upon digital extras. 
And if you want to sit on the front porch and bring the young film students up, you're like, these are actual extras running, jumping, doing all of this. And you got 30 bucks and you went home. Yeah. Hundreds of people. Some of them are taking big bumps. You know what I mean? Like it's, I mean, it's legit. There are these huge, uh, like, like walls with these big doors that they have to push open and everyone's intense, dude. It's, and so you got, awesome. You got an extra 10 bucks if you got a squib on you. You know, it's, <laughs> we love I, we love the SD Joneses of the Kurosawa films. How's that for combining cinema and yeah. wrestling? <laughs> <laughs> I got to say, though, uh, you know, the trees moving scene. If you've seen the tragedy of Macbeth or if you know about Macbeth, uh, you know that there is a, a rival army that is uh, basically yep. coming to get uh, in this uh, version Washizu, but it'd be Macbeth, and uh, and so that they're not spotted, they hide in the woods and they have all of this uh, greenery and like foliage on them. But when, there's so many of them that when they move, it looks like the trees are moving, and people yeah. are like, "Oh my gosh, the trees are moving!" But dude, I have yet to see a depiction of that better than this. Yeah. How awesome! I mean, how did they even do it? Did they just have trees in the back of trucks or something? Like, I have I no idea. I don't know. I think it's like, you, you you know, here, hold this roughage and hold it over your head. And then, you know, on my signal, uh, unleash hell. No, on my signal, you know, you, you scurry here. I mean, there's a line. The trees are attacking us, which, you know, if you have a brownie with pot in it is going to be amazing to experience. But... <laughs> But I, but I think there's that, you know, there's, there's somebody with a bullhorn. If you've ever done marching band, you know, somebody with a bullhorn on a, on a stand going, okay, on, on, on my signal, you're going to scurry with your little, you know, brushes, you know, or leaves over your head and you do it at once. And it looks amazing, dude. It's it. Cause it's so subtle and it's so, it's like, I don't remember if it's in slow motion or it just moves slowly. It just but that's a moment cool. where. It just looks so cool. Yeah. And the criterion restoration of yep. this movie, of course, just uh, looks incredible. Uh, but l- let's finally get to it. The the, the final scene. Two um, minutes. And, Two yeah. minutes of. Holy shit. Yeah. If you don't know this already, it's your fault. Macbeth dies in the end. <laughs> oh, oh you, first off, you said the title and you gave away yeah. a 60 five-year-old movie oh yeah yep 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 so it's your fault uh but in in this depiction it is uh again still my favorite uh depiction uh i'll even take it over well i'm not gonna say that that would ruin the new movie but anyways uh (laughs) dude there's a scene i'm just gonna kind of little play by play of this a little bit and then i'll let you kind of talk about what you're itching to say here uh the coolest thing about this is once the uh the rival kind of army comes into uh Macbeth's kind of uh, fortress so to speak um everyone's kind of turning on him because they realize that you know he's kind of gotten where he is yeah. by uh, some sketchy ways um and they are thinking that he is responsible for killing the uh the form his predecessor and all of these things there's a lot going on and basically uh Moshizu comes out on this kind of um, it'd be like a, an elevated porch wraparound porch, basically, because yes. he keeps he keeps like running around this um, this building. And there are just like hundreds of extras under him. 
and there's just a, a mass crowd, and he's just screaming about how like the the forest spirits prophecy is going to come true, and we are going to prevail. Just follow me, and then one arrow hits the wall. And yep. he freaks out and he's like, who did this? Who did this? You will not end this prophecy. And he starts freaking out. And then three arrows hit and then yep. five arrows hit. And yep. then it turns into just essentially a rain of arrows that barely miss him every time until they don't. And yep. when they don't, he keeps going. But there is a point where an arrow goes through his neck. Yeah. And for 1957, Holy I still shit. don't know how they do it because it looks fucking awesome, dude. Yeah. Tell I me mean, what you know about this stuff and what you love about it. Well, yeah, is is it's funny because in my notes I have, you know, an hour 44, first arrow, hour 46, final one through the neck. Yeah. So I want you, friends, I want you to try to imagine right now that we're we're talking with you. Think about the most violent scene you've ever seen in a movie. Uh, think about that email or you know put send it to austin on facebook or twitter what have you but a, a little a little backstory on cinema violence in, in in america we had a huge deal with bonnie and clyde which is 10 years after this film the the bloodshed that happens to a uh, warren Beatty and uh and faye dunaway at the end of that film for 1967 is absolutely brutal. And then two years later, Sam Peckinpah says, hold my beer and gives us two, really three amazing action sequences in the wild bunch in 1969. And it's, it's never, is never gone back. So the fact that 10 years prior to Bonnie and Clyde, you get a barrage of arrows. And I, and honestly, I haven't checked into it, but one of two things could happen when it comes to arrows in film. If you've ever seen um, uh, at a circus when somebody is a knife thrower and they have, you know, they have the per they have the model, you know, standing up against it, and you hurl knives at the model. Now, normally, if the wooden plank has the knives buried into the wall and then they jump up, so it looks like you see the hit. Yeah, so fast that you don't even notice it. It's Correct. Like, boom. Yeah. I'm gonna say best case scenario is those are a lot of those are built into the 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 ha the house that is attacking Tachira Mufuni in this. The worst part I'm telling you is they had dudes with arrows going, don't hit in the director said and curse I was don't hit him. <laughs> shoot close but don't hit him you can't get away with that today i understand that i'm a director of plays i don't want that to happen but it was a different time back then and the fact that it's captured on film it's really badass looking and it's absolutely brutal it is probably my favorite ending of all three films that we're going to talk about today yeah I mean, even if this is it ends and it ends. There's no prologue. There's no because traditionally in Shakespeare, when when there is a as soon as there is a major death, you have to have a monologue done before curtain. And this one really kind of does it. It's just arrow to the neck credits. And it's it's one of the most for me iconic looks of Mufune, like the way yeah. that his beard is and all of that. I mean, this is uh, what what a really great kind of iconic performance. And like I said, this is. 
probably as a full film, my least favorite of the three, and I still really like it, as people I'm sure listening can tell. Uh, this is one you should check out. It's on HBO Max and the Criterion Channel, like I said. Uh, I, I We were just talking about this before we started recording. This would be a great double feature with uh, uh, Tragedy of Macbeth. If you, if you feel like you can knock out kind of a similar story in both and kind of feel the differences there, I, I think it'd be great. Um, the other one I'm going to mention, if you want something lighter than this, as far as the story of Macbeth, Macbeth in movie style, Scotland, PA. Which oh, my is God. I haven't seen that in forever. James, James LaGrosse, uh, Maura Tierney, Andy Dick, Christopher Walken as a, a vegetarian Macduff. It is the story of Macbeth, but it's set in the 1970s Pennsylvania fast food world. And yeah. it, it tells the story in a much lighter tone, but it still captures the elements of the story. Really good acting from everybody involved. Yes, even Andy Dick. Um, and it's <laughs> it's just it's just if you want to cleanse your palate after seeing Throne of Blood and and Joel Cohen's The Tragedy of Macbeth, you, you, it would do well to do Scotland, PA. Yeah, that was a uh, Sundance uh, release that year. They ended up putting the actual DVD out, and I owned it for a long time. I have not seen it since, though. There you um, go. That's a that's a that's an that's a deep cut, man. Yep. All right, everybody. On that note, we are going to move on to the bad sleep. Well, we'll be right back in just a minute. The Bad Sleep Well, 1960, directed by Akira Kurosawa, of course, loosely based. This is the loosest adaptation yeah. based on William Shakespeare's play Hamlet, which was always my uh, one of my favorites of his. Uh, again, Toshiro Mifune stars in this film. It was released September 15, 1960 in Japan. We did not get it for three years until January 22, 1963. Thanks, Hollywood. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, streaming on the Criterion channel, if you have that. Uh, if not, it's available to rent different places. But um, basically, uh, in this loose adaptation of Hamlet, illegitimate son Koichi Nishi climbs to a high position within a Japanese corporation and marries the crippled daughter of company vice president Iwabushi. Uh, Iwabuchi. See, here goes our, our Japanese. I know. Uh, we're sorry, uh, friends. We're round eyes and we're terrible. Oh, my. Uh, at, at the reception, uh, the wedding cake is a replica of their corporate headquarters. Yeah. But as as uh, but an aspect of the design reminds the party of a hushed up death of Nishi's father. It is then that Nishi unleashes his plan to avenge his father's death. Uh, this is a savage revenge story, but also Kurosawa's first or uh, also a Kurosawa film about corporate corruption and greed. Yep. Uh, the Bad Sleep Well for a long time was my favorite Kurosawa film. Can you believe really? That? Which is very strange. I bought the I found the Blu-ray at a random place used, and I just bought it because it was a Criterion. Yeah. Like again, mid two thousands, and I loved this so much uh, at the time that this was my favorite. Again, this is like fifteen <laughs> plus years ago. Yep. Um, I'll talk about how I feel now. But this was my favorite Kurosawa film, uh, which sounds absurd to me now, to be honest, even though I still love it. Uh, but rewatching it for this episode, though, I don't know if it's my favorite. Damn, is it cool? Uh, it is uh, one of four films, along with Drunken Angel, Stray Dog and High and Low, in which Kurosawa explores the film noir genre 
albeit loosely, maybe yep. in some areas. Yep. Uh, but maybe that is a part of why I connect with it so much because I love noir to my core. Yes. And uh, the hints are definitely here. The bleak bummer ending, Bummerville, USA. <laughs> uh, the idea there that... There it is. There yeah, it is. Bummersville. <laughs> yeah. The idea that no one is truly only good or bad. Uh, the loss of innocence, etc. I mean, everything is here. And I just love this movie. Now, Matthew... Where does the bad sleep well connect with you, if at all? I, I first off, I love the the it's is this a cinematic equivalent of fire and brimstone? This is there. <laughs> okay, let's let's go to brunch. We've been told we're gonna burn. So no, I really I love the the bad sleep well. I also love Hamlet. Um, I am I happen to be married to to the most gorgeous Gertrude on the face of the earth. Sorry, Julie Christie. Um, <laughs> But this is, uh, <coughs> sorry, this is aspects of, you mentioned the looseness of the adaptations because there are storylines that are, that, are, that are famous from Hamlet that are used in this, not necessarily particularly in the, in the correct order for whatever that means. So I will tell you, friends, don't use Kurosawa films as cliff notes if you're writing a paper. You will get caught. It will not end well for you. And the bad sleep well is a great example of that. Um, one of the greatest, for me, one of the greatest mind fucks in theater is Hamlet's play within the play that he shows Claudius and Gertrude yeah. and Ophelia. And, and as you mentioned, Austin, this, that moment happens at the beginning of this play. We have a film that opens with a marriage, friends, a film that opens with a marriage, it's to, to quote my daughter watching Hamlet the first time. It's not going to end good. <laughs> I mean, and, and I'll say, see breaking the waves and the deer hunter and the Godfather. Ooh. These weddings do. Yeah. Not a good ending. So the fact that you have this wedding, is it of convenience? Is, is it of business? No, but we get a cake and I want to see the bakery that makes a cake of a giant building with a flower stuck through where the guy jumped out at the end. Just a uh, this, great this, mind fuck. This deserves this cake deserves to be on one of those uh, baking shows where you yeah, make Duff really Golden, wild make cake. this ace of cakes. <laughs> ace of cakes. That's what I was trying to think of. Yeah. yeah. I want to make no. uh, I want to make a bad sleep well cake. It's based on Shakespeare's Hamlet. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh this movie is really really awesome it's very different than the other two the other two have that kind of feudal like japanese samurai-ish uh, shogun all that and it's this modern. is um yeah this one is set in a kind of modern japan 1960s uh it is man it i love the way mifune looks in this as well yeah. But nothing, nothing beats. Let me see if I can find the guy's name real quick. Um, nothing beats. It's not the Shirei guy. It is. Um, oh my god, I can't find. I can't remember his are name. You about the, are you talking about the groom's father? The father? No, nope, no. Nope, I'm talking about the guy that they uh, that he takes to his own funeral. Oh shit! Yeah, I get. I yeah. Get. So so there's there's a guy in this. I'll just say it this way, I guess. That guy. Oh, Wada, Wada, Wada. Yeah. Um, so what he looks completely different on IMDB, so I didn't know. But what I love about this movie is the I love in-depth revenge stories. And, this is this film. 
yeah, yeah. Uh, Mufune's character, um, uh, Nishi, is uh, well, Nishi with air quotes. You can figure that yeah. out if you watch yeah, you it. Figure but, that out. But uh, but Nishi is man. This is like super in depth. Like this is um, detective, like undercover in like Hell's Angels or something. You know what I'm saying? Right. <laughs> like, yeah. Like this is. <laughs> It's, he gets uh, into this it's, business. It's and Matt he's Damon getting revenge. and The Departed. Or yeah, DiCaprio, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, DiCaprio. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this he's in it. And uh, I there's a point where he gets this uh, guy, Wada, because the whole point of the movie is there's this corporation and there are all these. We see this kind of wedding play out, this reception. And we see all these reporters there, and the reporters the, the are there. The Greek be- chorus, the Greek chorus yeah. of the report. And by the way, I, I have to mention this: there's a moment with the press because they're not allowed into the ceremony, yeah. but they of course hassle anybody goes through. And there is a moment where a piece of plot is given to the press, and they all run at the same time. I kept expecting them to run in the phone booths and knock it down like they did an airplane. <laughs> It's that silly. It's that cool, but it's also that silly. Yeah, it's it's great. But th- these this whole like slew of reporters uh, are hanging out in this room because they're not allowed into the recep- into the proper reception, but they can see it clear as day. Like they're just like yeah. in the next room with an open wall, and um, they're just like catty. They're just gossiping to but one yeah, another. Yeah, they mentioned that there, about- there was a cover up and a scandal that kind of went yeah. away unscathed five years prior. And they introduce all the the main characters. They they go, oh look, that's so and so. Like right. you know, he was with so and so, and they were, you know, they were uh, covering up uh, the guy who jumped out the window. You know, all of these things. Because yeah. the whole point is, there was a guy who jumped out a window, um, and uh, what what was his name? Fear. Uh, I didn't write it down, and I'm, I'm sorry. I never. But I, I want to make the man who's standing in for the groom's father. I'd say if you're a Kurosawa fan, he's the old guy who was in Ikuru. And it's yeah. in a bunch of other things. It is another just great actor. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Takashi Shimura, that's the go. guy. Uh, he's great. I mean, th- all of these movies, by the way, and it's like especially this one, I feel like um, you're going to get all the, you know how we talked about the Bergman Kurosawa has his. Players. Yeah. yeah, yeah, like the Bergman players. This is the Kurosawa players. I mean, you have all the guys. And the only reason I'm not saying their names is because I don't feel like butchering them. And today. we're ugly so, Americans, so sorry. Yeah. So, uh, no, but it's uh, basically they, uh, yeah. So the cake that comes out at one point with the rose in the window is related to the guy that uh, killed himself. And the whole point of the movie is that the reporters, as well as people, citizens and different people that you meet throughout the movie, believe that uh, that the higher ups of this business kind of forced this guy to kill himself. Yep. And that that's the premise of the movie. We watch it play out. I'll let you uh, find out how Nishi or Mafune's character uh, kind of fully ties into that. But uh, the best part about this, though, is uh, in order to fulfill his revenge plot, Nishi's, he starts getting these guys that. The corporation is kind of also pushing to uh, Jump. <laughs> be quiet or kill themselves, right? Yep, basically. And um, basically, there's a guy that's about to kill himself, Wada. And Nishi finds him before he does and basically says, you can either jump or you can help me. Yep. And uh, they basically make it like Wada's dead, but he's actually alive, hidden away with Nishi. And... Uh, he Nishi takes Wada to his own funeral. Yeah, so the, that's, the, the that's corporation. Yeah, the corporation that. basically has a shrine in public, 
that people can go to and pay their respects. So they're just sitting in a car and uh, Nishi Mufune is just sitting there whistling like he doesn't give a fuck. Yeah, man, that's a great that's a great choice by Mufune. It's so good. Just lackadaisical, just another day at the office, whistling. Yeah, yeah. And and Wada is just like about to have a panic attack. I mean, he's just he just feels like the corporation actually did care about him and and he feels like he's done a disservice. And then Nishi does something that leads him to realize, nope, they want to kill you. Like yep. you're bad. And that leads to Wada wanting to uh, kind of be a part of this revenge plot to kind of help find, quote unquote, justice. Right. Um, But this this what I love about this movie is it's kind of a series of those things. Right. Because then they find another guy and Nishi's trying to work on this guy and like get him on his side. And it turns into this whole plot of like, how can we stop this corporate like corruption? And uh, how can we do this in a way that's going to be like super impactful? Um, I absolutely adore the revenge plot here. And that Wada sequence, though, how freaked out he is watching this funeral. He's <laughs> peeking over the passenger side of the car like, dash. Yeah. Right. And you just see his eyes and they're so big. And he has this awesome hair, you yeah. know, and he's just like peeking out. And then a, a very similar thing happens whenever they get uh, I think his name is yeah Shirai. Uh, who doesn't look like he slept for like two weeks. Goodness <laughs> gracious. I mean, the makeup that they did on this guy, he might as well be dead. And uh, But yeah, there's a point where uh, Nishi brings him into the car and he turns around and Wada's in the back and the whole time Shirai thinks he's been dead, so he thinks he sees a ghost. Mm-hmm. And his reaction to that, the fact that Kurosawa lets that scene breathe and it's very, very still, you see Shirai hit the dash behind him and yep. just freeze. And he just stares yep. and it just cuts back and forth between Wada and Shirai. I mean, it's, it's these sorts of things. The, if you watch the bad sleep well, and you see these moments we're talking about, cause that would be vastly more impactful than me just telling you. Right. But you'll see why Kurosawa is a master. And I'm going to come back to that, but I want to give you a chance to jump. Well, in. you mentioned that. Yeah. You mentioned the, uh, the scene of the ghosts. Hamlet, Hamlet goes through that when chewing out Ophelia and, and by the way, so, and in this case, the Ophelia in the bad sleep, well, is the bride who has a limp and doesn't seem pretty enough. And again, this is post world war II Japan, the corporate world, Japanese culture. I'm sorry. Um, But, but there's, but there's that aspect where Hamlet gets to see the ghost as he's, as he thinks he's descending into madness and uh, but yeah, you're mentioning you're mentioning of watching your own funeral, man. That's messed up. That's just that's just that's it's, just kind of what that is, dude. It's it's really <laughs> messed up. But you know, there's a. Uh, I think this movie really is. If you go back to Akira, of course, that's like a masterpiece. I mean, Rashomon, Seven uh, Seven Samurai, all of these are just top tier, great, right? Yeah. But this is 1960, so this is ten years after his blow up. Rashomon, right? Rashomon, yeah, and uh, the thing is, you know, when you watch like Kubrick movies, for example, and you see like The Killing, which is phenomenal, yes, but then you see, then you like move forward even through stuff like Spartacus, and you go through Lolita, but then you get to two thousand one, same guy. And if you watch, if you watch The Killing and you watch it go, you do see that master developing, and then yep. he hits two thousand one, and you're like, holy. 
shit. And then you get to like Barry Lyndon and he's basically making moving paintings, right? Yep. And the the thing I'm talking about, the whole point of bringing that up is I feel like Kurosawa, once he gets to around this point, starts doing that, right? Like you really start to see like when the reporters at the very beginning, there's a point where um, like I think uh, the uh, the woman, uh, the Ophelia um, counterpart in this movie or whatever, you know, the, that that character uh, comes out and all the reporters move. And then she kind of walks into the reception. They all jump back in. The way the camera's shot there, every mm. reporter is in frame. Yep. Like it looks natural, but you see like every person between each other head. You know what I mean? And it's just that type of mastery, that type of like thinking of that, blocking that out. It still feels natural, but you get everything you need in that shot and that that goes for all the scenes even the scene where uh nishi takes uh shirai and wada to the room where uh the gentleman from the beginning that we mentioned uh, jumped out the window we don't see that but you know right um and uh nishi shows him the picture shirai the picture of uh what it looked like because he had, uh, like Nishi has a picture of the man that jumped out the window when he landed on the ground, and he describes it to him. Look how his neck's broken. Look how he's laying in a pool of blood. You know, and he's describing it. We never see the picture, but man, I feel like I have. It's like burned him. Like I could describe the picture to you, and it's the way that that scene shot where where Nishi's telling us those those bits, but then it's all shot in like a dark room with a flashlight that he keeps turning around yeah, to Shirai and then move. back to him. I mean, just the way that this story is told, the focus uh, that that Kurosawa is able to get, I don't remember seeing this level of that kind of visual, maybe mise-en-scene or, or blocking and all of those things uh, in a movie prior. It's it's masterfully done. Well, for uh, for you theater history majors out there, um, it, it, you know, it is traditional that in Greek and Roman plays... All of the violence happens off stage, and Shakespeare kind of mixes with that because there's there's some violent moments on stage, there's violent moments off stage. Like, like we don't we don't see Lady Macbeth kill herself, um, we don't see Ophelia drown herself, um, but we also have sword fights, and we'll get to that a little later. The other thing about this film is if you're not a fan of Shakespeare, but you are a fan of undercover crime dramas. If you love Serpico or Prince in the City or The Departed, this is right up your alley. It really is, especially with Kurosawa's character, who's been in the undercover for five five years. You know, Donnie Brasco's doesn't have shit on this guy as <laughs> far as you know, going undercover, having to play the role, having to do what he needs to do. Um Finding out, um, I'm, I'm going through some of my notes here a little bit, but, um, you know, taking a guy exactly to the room where the suicide jump happened as opposed as, as a way of getting information out of him and, uh, and, you know, posing as another employee and it, it's, it's really, it takes some task. It's, and it's like, think about the most petty long time grudge you've ever held. And it's probably nothing compared to, uh, to Shira Mufune in the bad sleep. Well, yeah, I think it's also really important that uh, at one point uh, we get to see uh, Mufune's Nishi sitting in a room with Wada. Yeah. And uh, he seems very calm. He doesn't seem very spiteful. 
and he seems very relaxed. And then he pulls the picture out of the man who jumped and then he yeah. gets enraged again and becomes that character. Um, and I think that's really important because that whole idea of loss of innocence. I mean, this movie is about uh, a character going against his nature because he thinks the just and rightful thing to do is this this plot that he's playing out. But at what cost? And yeah. and that cost is essentially him, again, going against his nature and potentially permanently changing who he is as a person because he's forcing it. And you actually see that you see the dynamic of him going, man, I kind of feel bad that I'm doing these things. And then he looks at that picture and goes, nope, they deserve it. Yep. <laughs> and the, the other part was when it came to Japan at this time in 1960, they're coming off, you know, end of world war two is 1945. They, the country proper use of the word literally has to rebuild and they've rebuilt and they, I, I, you know, if they have not become a global superpower at this moment, they will. They, they become one of the most, one of the richest, most influential countries on the planet. Just like the United States after World War II, where um, for us, it was going out to the suburbs. You have a, a wife, 2.5 kids, a dog, a house out in the burbs, a job, and just everything falls into place, a sense of comfort. And there is that in this. And I think the fact that the, the film leans on that, that you have a job, a family, a wife, all is well. But in this aspect, it's not only is there corruption, which is happening years before this and that's what makes some of the great films of the 1950s in the united states is you peek under the blanket you peel the skin back and find out what is the corruption going on in vanilla american suburbia and the same could be said about modern businessmen in japan at this time is and it's not every business but this one this this company is terribly corrupt and it's starting to unleash as the story goes on yeah, yeah. Also, Japan has really great wrestling. But anyways. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Antonio um, Inoki. Um, do, yeah. do, should we do all do we do all the Mr. Fuji? No, we're good. Mr. We're Saito, good. We're good. All, yeah, all the great <laughs> Let, let all people the great do wrestlers. the research. <laughs> great Giant Baba. Yeah, love it. And, and we love taking American wrestlers and making them big ass stars in Japan. We yeah, appreciate yeah, that. Great. Love you, Vader. Love you, Vader. Uh, anyways. Love you, Terry Gordy. Love you, uh, <laughs> Terry Funk. Love you, Stan Hansen, Bruiser Brody. All y'all, you know who you are. Yeah, no. So it's uh, the, the thing about the Bad Sleepwell, too. Again, with, with that kind of like noir revenge story, um, all of that, uh, of course, I am going to be a complete geek over this because I just already love the story. I love the way it's shot. I love uh, the performances by these characters. Uh, this is these performances are much more subdued than a lot of the kind yeah. of samurai movies where exactly. you have that really operatic, as you put it, using the that in the same definition as you did. Um, but you have a bit more subdued performances. But there is a lot of nuance, even in the relationships in this particular with Nishi and his uh, as as they put it in the. Uh, the synopsis that I read, the crippled wife. Uh, <laughs> mm, um, yeah. But uh, anyways, the uh, yeah, their their relationship is really interesting. And it actually got me a few times. The music in this is also really great and is surprisingly contemporary from what I'm used to 
um, in a Kurosawa movie. And there are a few moments like when uh, Mufune's uh, wife uh, comes to find him in the ruins of an old factory. Yeah. And um, and uh, the wife falls at one point. Oh, no, no, no. Sorry, this is earlier. This is whenever he's talking with the brother. Sorry. Okay, okay. Um, and the brother's like, are you sure you love her? Like, he's like really kind of being an asshole about it. Um, and and uh, uh, the wife actually stumbles at one point and calls out. And Mufune and the brother run toward the door. But Mufune just shoves him out of the way and uh, like runs over and helps her. And all it is is like like. Uh, this just there's something about the music that kind of tells the story. Also, the scene where she comes to see him, um, at those the ruins of that factory, and yeah. uh, they they embrace at one point. But the the framing of that shot and everything is so perfect, and it just makes me feel all the feelings. And then there will be a scene where it's literally just like a lone trumpet, yeah, and that's it. And somehow it's just like perfect. Like the music actually again here stood out to me also enough to make note of it and just say like. Man, I really love the way this is used. At, at this time, because it's 1960, we're, we're used to, moviegoers are used to a full-ass orchestra. And so the fact that we have simple, smaller number of instruments being highlighted in these films, it really doesn't, it, it's not until really Ennio Morricone comes into play where he's able to combine the small sounds with the large sounds. Yeah. So I think the fact that the, the, the fact that uh, Kurosawa's films have a smaller sound when it comes to its score um, is, is, a, is an example of, of making it more intimate for the audience, but also because it's, it's in Japan, still pulls you into another world. Yeah, it's I mean, I, I, I could just go on and on and on about this movie again. This used to be my favorite Kurosawa I once I finally get to the Kurosawa marathon, I will see where this fits. But it is actually my favorite of the three, and I like all three of them. So we know where the final one fits. But all right, where's your what's your list, tough guy? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm serious. This this movie is one I would like strongly okay. encourage people to check out. I'm really sad that uh, this isn't on Blu-ray yet. What are you doing, Criterion? Wait, Ron's not on Blu-ray yet? No, 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 no. The Bad Sleep Well. Bad I'm sleep talking well. about The Bad Sleep Well still. Good. I, I yeah, have the I, DVD that's still. That's why I want the Blu-ray collection. Hello, yeah. Criterion. Come on, Criterion. I'm I'm sick of emailing your your suggestions email. Oh, really? You do that? I. You know what's funny? Because I had two two of the films that have been on my request list for years. They they banged them out in the last couple of years. Um, Local Hero, which is just a game changer for me. And then at the time of this recording, uh, they announced they're gonna they're gonna release Round Midnight, which yeah. I absolutely adore. I would love for them to put out um, Big Night. Uh, I would love for them to do Tender Mercies, except another company has already put it out on Blu-ray. But really, what is now becoming higher and higher on my request list is the Kurosawa box set. Guys like us will pay for it. Let us give you our money. Yeah, let us give you our money, and I know Studio Canal owns the rights to Ron. You can leave that out if you have to. I'll no, no, take it, for Christ's sake. I already had to deal with the disappointments of the films not in the Fellini box I know, set. I know. It's the stupid rights that they have to fight for. But anyways, all that said, the, the Bad okay. Sleep Well, to finish up this little bit here, uh, the Bad Sleep Well, I cannot encourage you to watch this enough. This is... Okay. Uh, just a, a really great classic. Um, I mean, you have the opening that pretty much sets everything up. 
And then it's just let's watch Mufune be the most awesome uh, dude carrying a badass motherfucker wallet uh, because he's going to he's taking a motherfucker to his own funeral. This dude is going to get a guy and make him feel like he's seen a ghost and look at a picture of a dead body. And yep. the dude's like freaking out. I mean, this dude is cutthroat in this in the best way that noirs can make characters cutthroat. And I just love it. Agreed. And if you yeah, if you're if you're a fan of Shakespeare and if you're also a fan of uh, corporate crime films or, uh, you know, uh, undercover detective stories, it, the, the bad sleep well is right up your alley. Check it out. Yep. All right. Uh, we'll be back right in a moment to talk about our final film uh, in this kind of trilogy that Kurosawa did, the Shakespeare trilogy. It is Ron from 1985. All right, Ron from 1985, also, of course, directed by Akira Kurosawa, based on the William Shakespeare play King Lear, which is, an I'll tell you this, I've actually never seen a King Lear adaptation, whether it be on stage or in film, other than like movies like this. But it is, I think it might be my favorite Shakespeare thing that I see adapted often, because those movies almost always get me. I love the King Lear thing, but this is a... If Mifune isn't the greatest Japanese actor of all time, it is Tatsuya Nakadai. Hell yeah. Uh, talk about The Sword of Doom, uh, which is probably one of, if not my favorite samurai movie. I fucking yeah. love that movie. And Nakadai, both of them are in it. But uh, just a quick, th I, I got to put that movie over just real quick. The Sword no, of Doom is do. awesome because you follow a psychopathic villain. And Mifune is the hero, but he's not in it that much. No. Only whenever the villain encounters him. The opening scene is Nakadai's uh, samurai murdering an old man on a hill. Yeah. Like, he's just a bad guy. And the whole movie, you're following a the bad guy. Um, you know, not to be mistaken with uh, Scott Hall. You the know, hello to brother. the bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> hey, yo. But, no, what is Japanese for hey, yo? I know, right? <laughs> Probably hey, yo. But anyways, uh, <laughs> uh, but N Nakade is awesome. And I remember when I first saw Ron, and I'd already seen a few other Kurosawa movies, uh, namely uh, Yojimbo, which is the first one I ever saw Nakade in. Nice. And yeah. uh, I, I remember I was like, man, his eyes look really familiar in Ron. <laughs> and then I finally looked at once I learned what IMDb was, I looked it up later and I realized it was him. And I could not believe that this guy was still making movies. This dude's still making movies today. How old is he now? He's in his 90. And he's in still 2020 is his last credit. If he's still holding a blade, it's kind of like if you remember the the guy who played uh, Mr. Hong in Enter the Dragon. This is a guy who fights Bruce Lee at the end, and that dude was sixty. So dude. there's there's a there's a badassery aspect about that. So I'm I glad mean, you brought that up. It's funny. We we were talking off the air about Sword of Doom. I had not seen it before until probably about a month ago, a friend of mine, uh, so my good. buddy Brock had recommended it to me. And then I went to a certain store. It rhymes with um, half lice records. And uh, I found it. And, and I was like, God, how do I not know this? By the way, if you have any Japanese samurai films on Criterion, whether you know anybody or anybody involved in it, just grab it. That, Cause yeah. that's what I did. And that's what you should do. And uh, yeah, watching this guy descend in the madness 
And the fact that Tashira Mufuni is just kind of off by the side going, I'll, I'll, I'll bide my time. I'll wait. It's, it's Dude, so that good. movie is perfect to me. Uh, what a great opening. What a great confrontation with Mufune. What a great ending. <laughs> I mean, that is. And then he was also in Harakiri, which is another one of my <laughs> just my favorites. He's incredible in that. I mean, guys, Nakadai is a master. And uh, also in Yojimbo, he's the uh, samurai with a gun, which I always have loved. That's just the greatest. <laughs> yep. So um, anyways, uh, yeah, it's it's pretty great. But back to this here. Release date, June 1st, 1985 in Japan. We got it. Closest time, all right? We got it December 20th, 1985. So that's now, pretty close. Part of, part of the reason why that was is because... Um, Martin Scorsese and Francis Coppola threw some of their money into it to, I believe Fox put it out here in the States. And uh, this was, this was great as, cause I was, I was 15 when this film came out and this was not my first Kurosawa. I saw Kagamusha at 10 explains a little, but the fact that, um, and I didn't get a chance to see this on the big screen. I, I got to rent it and it wasn't until I was, I believe a sophomore at Ball State that I got to see it on a big screen because they showed it on campus. But this was this was one of those things where if, if you see a film where, and I'll use the example, Quentin Tarantino presents. He's not yeah. directing. He's 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 showing you the film and or he's throwing a little money into it. And I know Scorsese and Coppola did this with Ron. They did this with a silent film version of Napoleon around the same time. It's just they, they put some of their money out and said, hey, middle America, we like this film. We hope you like it, too. And that's that's a great description of Ron on paper. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, the, the budget and I'll talk a little bit about the budget and uh, some contributors as well. But uh, the budget was 11 million. And it made approximately $19 million, Thank which, God. Yeah. Made, it almost doubled, which is cool. It's not streaming anywhere, but it is for rent it's, on yeah, Amazon. It's, not, it's which, not your kids' blockbusters and everything, but the fact that a film of this nature and this size and scope made a profit, made a profit in, in non-Asian countries, that's a big deal. Big deal. Uh, largely considered Kurosawa's final masterpiece, though not his final film. Correct. Uh, with Ron, legendary director Akira Kurosawa reimagines Shakespeare's King Lear as a singular historical epic set in 16th century Japan. And yes, they had rifles. Um, uh, majestic <laughs> yeah, in you. scope, the film is Kurosawa's late life masterpiece, a profound examination of the folly of war and the crumbling of one family under the weight of betrayal, greed, and an insatiable thirst for power. By the 1970s, and this is kind of tying into what you were saying, uh, Kurosawa could hardly get things made off his name anymore, Good Lord. Uh, let alone on-location epics like this. So uh, with the help of Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas, Kurosawa George, okay, was actually right, able right. to make, uh, in 1975, Kagemusha. So different film. Yeah. Um, but uh, th they actually helped him get that funded and uh, created. And it was a film that Kurosawa, after the fact, and whenever Ron was in preparation, Kurosawa said was basically, uh, Kagemusha was basically a practice run for Ron. That's what he, yeah, that uh, makes how sense. he talked about it. So after proving himself with Kagemusha, at the time, Ron's budget uh, of $11 million made it the most expensive Japanese film in history leading to its distribution in 1985, exceeding the budget of 
7.5 million for his previous film Kage Musha. So this was his most uh wow. uh expensive film but also the most expensive Japanese film up to this point. Now check this out. This is just some fun fact stuff. I just Please. love this. We've already talked about this. Yeah. The 1400 uniforms and suits of armor used for the extras Extras were were designed by costume designer Emiwada and Kurosawa and were handmade by master tailors over for over more than two years. It took them to make this stuff. Yeah. The film also screw your CGI. The film also (laughs) used 200 horses. Cut pace, cut pace, cut pace. (laughs) The 200 horses were used in this. Kurosawa loved filming in lush, expansive locations, and most of Ron was shot amidst the mountains and plains of Mount Aso, uh, Japan's largest active volcano. Uh, he loves volcanoes. We saw a volcano in the bad sleep. Well, also, totally. uh, Kurosawa, w- well, hey, if I lived near an active volcano, I would too, but that's fine. Yeah. Uh, Kurosawa was granted permission to shoot uh, at two of the country's most famous landmarks, the ancient castles of Kumamoto and uh, Himeji. I don't know if Fair I said enough. that right. Sorry, I tried. You're not ugly. Um, but uh, for the castle of uh, Lady Sui's family, one of the characters in the film, uh, he oh. used the ruins of a custom constructed Azusa castle uh, made by Kurosawa's production crew near Mount Fuji. Uh, Hidetora's, uh, which is Nakata's character, uh, his third castle, which was uh, burned to the ground, was a real building which Kurosawa built on the slopes of Mount Fuji. No miniatures were used for this segment, guys. All right. And Tetsuya yeah. Nakadai uh, had to do the scene uh, where Hidetora flees the castle in one take uh, because uh, they literally burned it down and it was done. <laughs> yeah. We so, need, I'm sorry. We um, need to rebuild this. Can you stop the fire so we can rebuild it and shoot it again? Yeah. No. Can you imagine if Nakadai just tripped and just ate right? it? You know what I mean? So anyways, um, the, the, the point is, uh, this was a huge film. Huge! And I mean, they don't do this, and you can see it anymore, and you can see it in every frame. Matthew, I'm going to pass it to you by saying I really appreciate this film a lot. I really, or uh, if, you're, but, if, you're, if you're William Hurt in broadcast news, I really a lot appreciate this. Uh, yeah, uh, but, the, but, so but, much, but well, real man. quick, real quick, but, yeah. but, but though it is so so great it's still not among my favorites of kurosawa if how, you, can believe how, it. you know what how rough a list is it that this isn't at the top of your yeah because it oh. is actually really great where does this sit with you though that's what i'm getting uh, at where I, does this so, sit with so, you so my as i mentioned before my my viewing history with kurosawa um i saw kagamusha in the theaters when i was 10 there was a, there was a little two screen theater in Grand Blanc, Michigan. Thank you, because it, it you know we had to make less trips to the Detroit suburbs. Um, so I got to see Kagamusha on a big screen. Did not see Ron on a big screen. Didn't come to Flint, but as soon as it came out on video, I was I was fifteen and I knew more about Ron than I did King Lear, and I was just blown away by it absolutely just blown away and we'll get to you mentioned it before as far as the costumes and the settings as as an old person we have to tell the young people yeah no scales no cg this this shit actually happened you had to actually build it you had to actually make it as you mentioned god let's get it on the first take or else it's just going to cost more and more and more so and it looks amazing 
It does. And that's that that's the thing. It's like I, I my daughter who's now 20 and is a film major. I remember when she was younger, I I took she had to deal with her crazy old movie dad doing a doing a stretch of showing her not the films but the scenes of real stunts done by real stunt people. You know, not, no fast and furious stuff. Um, you know, you're doing it with or without a permit, but these were actual human beings pulling this stuff off. So you just showed her a, a best of Buster Keaton then. I showed her Buster him. Keaton. <laughs> I showed her the French Connection, the Seven Ups, Vanishing Point, Bullet, um, all the Ronin, you know, all that. And, and yes, yes, I showed, I didn't show her the whole thing, but of course the, the car chase scenes in Death Proof. So, yeah. so the fact in this one is, and also my history with King Lear, um, I directed a radio production of King Lear. I did an all-female production of King Lear with nine women playing every every role. And I'm uh, I'm married to the most beautiful Goneril in history because she got to, my wife Lynn got to play Goneril in a production a decade ago uh, in Pennsylvania. And it, whether you know King Lear or not, but it's a great story about about parents and children. Whether it's and you know in King Lear it's three daughters that he's going to divide the kingdom up. In this one, it's his three sons. So it's the relationship between parent and child, and and everything that comes with that, the dynamics of it, the the love, the antagonism, greed, uh, all of that comes into play. Um, in this one, I'll say the youngest one, who's supposed to be Cordelia, pushes back. Um, the one in, in Shakespeare's King Lear speaks up and is banished. So there's a little less conflict. Um, but I but I also remember as a 15-year-old knucklehead watching this on video at home, as you mentioned, being amazed at the sets, being amazed at the costumes. Um, there are certain... At this time, when this film came out, when when the film was nominated and won the Academy Award for Best Costume Design, I was like, I'm going to watch this. And if, if Ron doesn't win, I'm done for the night. And it yeah. justifiably won. So and it's not just the most costume design, just the, how much detail went into everything from your leads to the extras. And it was also an example of, you know, and we've gotten better on this. Um, foreign films are not just for the international film category alone. Um, Parasite's an example. The worst, per, the worst woman in the world is, you know, is, is you can get more nominations than just the international film category. Ron's a great example of that. Yeah, this is, um, re regardless of, uh, any hangups I had watching it, this is incredible. This yep. is one of those movies where, like, you can just watch it. And it's like, no matter how you feel about the story or anything going on, you, I don't understand how you can't be wowed. I, I will say, I will say one uh, preferential nitpick just for fun because you'll get a sure. kick out of this. One thing I noticed, and you'll probably, I want to see if you have noticed this before too. Once we got out of the production code, you know, mid mid six sixty six or so, yeah, and in the late sixties, you know, we stopped having pretty much all. Uh, black and white movies a lot of even like smaller budget and stuff started getting into color oh by the way started... Ron's in color friends you can watch this <laughs> yeah. for those who have extremely vibrant color too yes so uh in in the 1950s and 60s you know you you get these movies that are coming out in color and then uh a lot of them are made by filmmakers who were making black and white movies yeah 
And then what happens is, this is the best I can come up with, is when they make color movies, they just still light them the same way. <laughs> yes! Which ding, is ding, not, ding, ding, ding. not how it works. That's not how uh, it no. works, friends. Yeah, so you, one time on the show, you said uh, you can't just take all the color off your TV. That's not what black and white, that's not how that no. works. But I will say this, though. Uh, with this movie, and I did this with one of the um, uh, Zatoichi movies because I have that box set. The third oh. one is the first one in color. Oh, yeah. And uh, I just I have a setting where if I click to the setting, it's just all like I just take all the color out. And it actually looks normal as a black and white movie. Does it but really? Like then, yeah. But oh, I mean, it's not as like rich, of course, as black and white would be. But I mean, the lighting looks more normal. But then when you put the color back in, it looks wonky because you can see exactly where the lights are. And you know what I mean? Like, wow. like it's it's so obvious. Will, will and, somebody and send like, me a black and white copy of Nightmare Alley, please? Just so I can verify I know, right? that. Yeah. But it's uh, what's funny is this is made not in the 60s nor the 70s. This was made in the 80s. Yes. And it's like Kurosawa never learned this. <laughs> no, <laughs> because because no, there are some scenes that like dusk when it's mostly natural lighting. It looks absolutely incredible. And I wish the entire film looked that way. Yeah. At the time, there's a point where the father's sitting with his three sons and uh, two other kind of nobles that are like hanging out. Um, and they're sitting in that kind of makeshift little fenced in area after yeah. they chased wild boar. Uh, it's the early scene right before he announces that he's going to pass his power down. And uh, in that scene, it's just like so obvious that he has like big reflectors on people. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and it looks so it's but I say all that to say, even though it's a nitpick, just preferentially, it, oh. it, I will say this, though, with that, though, it's one of like the most unique looking movies I think I've ever seen um, <laughs> because it looks so bizarre. Could you could you imagine now and now we're doing that? Could you imagine showing Kurosawa a handheld camera? And then could you show? Could you no. imagine showing Kurosawa the film Tangerine? <laughs> you can make it on yeah. this. Yeah, he, you can make it on this iPhone right he'd here. He'd lose That's his the, mind. He would lose his mind there. You know. <laughs> yeah, and and I'm also surprised that like he never really uses like steady cams. No. You know what I mean? Like he was always very formalist with that approach. He always yeah. used like a lot of tripod shots and dollies, and, uh, and, and that I, was about it. And I think for, I think for film fans out there, just like theater fans out there, I mean this is this is a this is a completely different time. So even and and even if the act we've talked about the acting styles and and especially in Japan and how, and how it's heightened, but there is also a certain heightened of the film directors and the way they shot things um you know because there, there are certain films where we we watch scenes and you're like well i could i just hold on to something and walk through it like this yeah. or um i was on the dvd of ron which you should check out criterion and you should put out the box set there is a wonderful introduction by one of my favorite film directors sydney lamette and he talks about how much why he loves Kurosawa and why he loves this this film Ron. And I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about it until he mentioned it in the introductions. When you watch Ron, there are no close-ups. There are almost no reaction shots. There are no dolly shots. Yeah, I, I was gonna I was gonna take that back because I said uh, I said dolly, but there are none. It's all yeah. tripod shots. Because you know. Try lugging those. Try lugging those rails up on a hill. Um, 
you know, we've talked about the lack of, of realism. Um, it's kind of a reverse of Bergman, where everything is inverted with Bergman while he's in Bummersville. This is the outskirts of Bummerville where everything is heightened to an extended degree. But those shots that we're used to, we're used to reaction shots, we're used to close-ups. Because you have to, close-ups are kind of like the exclamation points of film. You should really use them when you need to. If you use them too much, then it feels like you're on social media and everything's in all caps. Yeah, yeah. This is, I mean, it's it's really impressive, I think, how this is shot. Um I'm trying to think where to start because there's a lot. Uh, there is a lot. I know we we kind of gone. I don't even all have a lot of notes. As as story. So yeah, I don't even have a lot of notes so much as I just have a lot to say. I will say this uh, just to give everyone because I, I don't feel like I did this justice yet. Uh, the story basically takes place with the great lord who is essentially the person who rules this whole territory, and he rules it and has gotten to rule it because he essentially obliterated all other families in the area many of which who had daughters who are now married to his children. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, anyways, he, he uh, is uh, the great Lord. He has three sons and he uh, basically through having a vision decides that he is going to uh, essentially give uh, his power, like taught, like pass it on to his oldest son, the youngest son of which, which uh, Matthew mentioned earlier, did not take too kindly to this and thought it was bullshit. Um, and he basically gets, written. yeah, and he gets, he gets, uh, he gets, uh, exiled basically, but the oldest son takes over and the whole point of the story, and this is kind of where a lot of like the King Lear and different kind of greed and all those things come in heavily is, uh, basically the great Lord still feels like he should have some level of power cause that's what he's had. Um, but he already passed it off and the sons are kind of like, no, dude, you have to start listening to us. You gave us the power. You need like one of your guard killed one of my guys like you can't let that happen anymore. And he's like, fuck you. I'm the great Lord. <laughs> like you know, only like, better written, only better um, written. Yeah. But no, it's, but, yeah. So for those for those watching this film, Saburo's in blue, Jero's in red, Taro is is in yellow. And th- yeah, one of the great moments in King Lear and it happens here and now it's happening with a lot of people of it's not just three the three sons have their land and it becomes a question of well, who's going to take pop and it's not just pop it's also his army now in king lear i think they're a little more cutthroat about it although they are in this one as well is um i need i need a hundred of my men and one of the children will say well why not 50 and then another will say well why not 25 and then why not 10 and then why not none of them yeah, because and that's that's the aspect of um, where I'm giving away the power, but I should still be in control that yeah. Lear has to deal through. And anybody who has parents or in, in-laws or grandparents, they're in a housing facility. Watch this show. Yeah, it's I mean, and, and we, we see this story in, in many kind of contemporary movies that have kind of loosely pulled from this story. The one that comes to mind that I actually really love, funny enough, is. One of the uh, Planet of the Apes reboots. It's Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Well which, done, sir. Uh, Look yeah, at that. Really pulls from from this story, uh, which is part of why I love that movie so much. Um, but yeah, it, it, this is super influential. But the thing that I love about it is when I watch this again, I watched all the Kurosawa stuff that I've seen, with the exception of a few that I've seen more recently. 
I like Yojimbo and things like that. I watched all these back in like 2005 or something. You know, whenever Netflix first came out yep. and I was getting DVDs, I got all of them through Netflix. So um, I watched all of these. I watched Redbeard. I watched like everything Criterion had out at the time I watched. And uh, I think the important thing for me was like, I always felt bad for the dad because I always thought the great Lord was like this really good dude. And the sons were assholes. And then I watched it this time. I'm like, he's kind of a dick. <laughs> I mean, um, the sons are also assholes, but like, like the dad's kind of an asshole too, which um, is, I guess Shakespeare, gonna, right? A lot of characters are assholes. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this out since I'm older than you are. And, uh, yeah, there is what is what is and I'm going to use another analogy that I've used for many, many years. And it's kind of timely in this case. Um, I've always said that the film The Big Chill should be watched every five years. Sky Point to William Hurt, although we know what you did with Marley Matlin um, <laughs> there, you know, because I was 13 when that film came out. And this is a great example of the art doesn't change. You change. So The Big Chill came out. I was 13. I thought it's really good acting. And I saw adults who were vulnerable, not in a comedic way. Same thing when I was 18. Same thing when I was 23. Although soon after I was 23, a classmate of mine from college committed suicide. Then you get into work. You get married. You have children. You establish your career. The film is like those who think, those who go from thinking Ferris Bueller is a folk hero into being a douchebag. Um, <laughs> it depends on your age. And I think Lear, Lear and this story is to a certain degree the same thing because you're like, if you're of a young age, you're probably pulling for the children because you're of that age. And then you reach our age and you'll get, don't worry, Austin, you'll get to our age. And you're like, um, yeah, he's also a bag, but he's also their dad. So, yeah, no, well, so I'm definitely, I'm like yeah. in the middle. Like, what <laughs> yeah, I love about exactly. it is all the characters are kind of like these gray areas because you, you can see the point of view of the sons, but like they're also kind of being assholes about it. You yeah. know what I'm saying? And it's just like, you know, it's like, dude, he's been the leader. He's still giving you the power. Just give him the fucking 30 men. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Or like, or like, you know, yeah. how about don't put out a hit on him and say, we'll kill anyone who gives him food and water? That'd be really tight. Uh, but you know, but then at the same time, like he basically like exiles the only son that is willing to love him. Uh huh. You know yeah. what I'm saying? And how's I that mean, turn out? That's and 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 how great. But everything I've just said, though, I know I'm kind of being hyperbolic and ridiculous. No, about it, but the, my, the point is, though, like everything I've said, like what a story. Yep. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, I love when people take something that is so good, like these Shakespeare stories. Shakespeare stories are so complex. You know, like they're so they often are so complex, but they're also like easy to follow. Does that we're make still, sense? There's a reason why we're still doing them today. Yes, yeah. I know that I know that these thighs and thous are over overpowering. And, you know, it's like watching a foreign film. The first I always tell people the first five, ten minutes you're in a Shakespeare play. Stay with it. You, you feel like you're in the weeds. But all you have to do is watch the characters. If you have great actors that tell the story, you'll be able to understand it. And that's the case in, in, in Ron and King Lear. The other thing is, and I love mentioning this, is 
I mentioned Sam Peckinpah earlier. The great battle scene in this film is halfway through. And as I'm going through my notes, and occasionally I do a little nine face, but like an hour in, and I just write the flags, the arrows, the horses, the music, all of the shit that needed to be made. We mentioned this before, like you have to get hundreds of extras on horses with the effects or would not with the effects of arrows. Okay, you're going to run across this way. We're going to shoot arrows this way. The music, which is sparse, although still packs a punch. There's the great moment of dad sitting cross-legged while all of this brutality is going beyond, behind him. This is the greatest scene anything. ever. Unreal. I was going to bring this up, but th- like as far as favorite Kurosawa scenes. Yeah. Because I, I already said this isn't even like among my favorites of his. But in terms of polling scenes, if I was going to do like a top five Kurosawa scenes, my God. this is one or two. I don't know how this could be better. I mean, th- this is one of those things where I'm watching this movie and I have like little nitpicks with the production and things, even though it looks amazing, but it's just yeah. preferential shit. And then um, I, I watched this and when Taro's troops raid that fortress and the great Lord just sits, like you said, cross-legged and you see flaming arrows shooting through the walls. You hear gunshots. They're shooting th- like through all of the, uh, like well, doorways. Sorry, even that the music overpowers it. Well, the music is playing over it. So, yep. 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 So you get all of that. The music's incredible. You're yep. also seeing like people get cut down. Uh, not, and Brutally. I'm not just talking, yeah, I'm not totally. just talking about like uh, like there's a point where Saving Private Ryan style where a dude's well, sitting there holding his own arm. Yeah, uh, oh, that God. someone has yeah. cut off. So yeah. a year, so a year. Just point of reference. This is 1985. A year before this was the introduction of PG-13, and yeah. your your prior to PG-13, one of the most gnarly moments is the heart being pulled out in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. The first PG-13 film was Red Dawn, the original Red Dawn, and things afterwards. So I I wouldn't even put, I, you know, if I had my way, and I'm not the MPAA, and I thank God that I'm not, um, I, I, would, I would probably put a PG-13 on this film, or even lower, because of, because I'm one of those violence for artistic purposes guys. Um, but my, oh, I don't think this deserves to be a rated R at all. Not at all. No. Not at all. But because it's blood and it's a blood and a body count and blah, blah, but hold blah. Hold on. Hold on. The blood looks like red paint. That's it's like a, one of those movies. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah, these are the <laughs> same people that were scared of metal, metal rock lyrics in the 80s. So take that. Yeah, that's true. Word. No, that's true. That's true. Yeah. But this this seems great for another reason, too, because you see the great Lord sitting there and you just see all of this havoc with this beautiful music over it. And uh, this this is one of those moments. This whole scene is one of those moments where I said it's kind of a dusk or whatever, and it looks yeah. incredible. Unreal. Incredible. My favorite. Yeah, I'm sorry. My favorite use of CGI in a movie, and I still tell this to this day, is not an action movie, not a sci-fi fantasy movie. It is Ang Lee wanted to have more clouds in Sense and Sensibility. Yeah, that is how you use technology for good and not for overabundance. Yeah, yeah. On TCM, just a quick caveat: I saw like people like Scorsese and a bunch of like those uh, those kind of new Hollywood guys, and they were talking on a. It was a little bit between two movies, right? And uh-huh. TCM did this thing, and I, I wish I could remember who said it. 
Um, but one of those guys, one of those classic guys, was like the best special effects are the ones you never see. Exactly. And and that's how I think CG should be used because it's like uh, Darren Aronofsky with the fountain. The only CG <sighs> he used was to make the petals flutter or whatever. Yep. Um, because they looked fake, and it's like that's great. Like use it. I don't care. Um, but anyway, so the anyway. thing with this movie, though, this is what's so great. I love this. There's a point where the Great Lord's sitting there and the place is burning around him. And uh, it cuts to his son, uh, Taro, I think, and, and one of his henchmen or whatever. And uh, they're just like, yeah, don't worry. He's too proud to come out. He'll just commit seppuku and we'll be done. And for those of you who don't know, seppuku, a.k.a. Harakuri, is where you basically take a oh, specific sorry, ritual blade. If you're from the blade. Midwest... Harry Carey. Yeah, Harry Carey. <laughs> uh, but there's a ritual blade that every samurai carries. Yeah. And I think you cut across your stomach and then up or down. Like, but basically, yeah. you form a, a an upside down T of sorts. It's, um, it's like it's like we we always expect us to cut our wrists across when you should really do it down. That is not an endorsement or a recommendation. That's just fact. Yeah, yeah. I mean. Yeah, that's dark. Thanks a lot. Anyways, yeah, <laughs> just kidding. Bummerville. Shut up. Um, but no, this is uh, like so. Anyways, that's what uh, it's a really brutal ritualistic suicide, basically. That is that is uh, highly respected at this yep. point and in this culture. And so uh, the great lord goes to commit seppuku because he realizes he's lost and he can't find his ritual blade. And great moment. He's raging like he's just yep. running around there are still arrows flying everywhere uh there's a point where he actually runs out of the room and there are all these women and there are people with rifles yep. and they see him and they just unload and they shoot all the women and he does that big yeah. operatic like reaction but it's so perfect and dude i mean this sequence is incredible and then of course this scene is the one that ends with the mandatory one take because they burnt down the actual <laughs> set that they were using it is absolutely awesome, and this is on YouTube, everybody. You could actually—I don't yeah. want you to watch this out of context. I would love you, you should, to just watch the movie, but if you could, if you need motivation, go look this scene up. And I actually sent it to a friend of mine because I loved it so much. I was like, "Dude, this movie fucking rules!" Like, watch this scene. <laughs> well, there, and there's a couple moments that you mentioned. Is uh, yeah, one one the brutality of that aspect. Um. There is a moment in violence. Every everybody has a a threshold, a line that's drawn in the sand as where they will go to with violence. And uh, some it's with women. Some of it is with children. We understand that. I, I think of the moment in the Wild Bunch where a woman shoots William Holden in the back and he turns around and just blows her away, which I'm sure sent white male America into a, into a, a tizzy, but, but that hadn't really been shown on films before. And I think that, I think the, the fact that you mentioned that, that aspect of it, of, Oh, nobody's safe. It's yeah, like, think, think, think of the action film where a female or a child is a victim of violence. And one that comes to mind, I, I mentioned this because I, I just purchased it recently on, on Blu-ray, is John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13. When Kim Richards, when the little girl gets shot at that at the beginning of the film, you know this film's not fucking around. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and Ron does that to a certain degree with this. Of there, Nobody's immune to the carnage that's going to happen in this story. But I also think with the with the violence threshold, I think a big part of it too is is context and yeah. a respect for what you're showing. Because 
you know, you have a film like this, and there's a reason for why it's happening. And it's not just to build like heat on the bad guys, right? Yeah. Like this is trying to establish something. Unlike, for example, Rambo Four, where <laughs> the bad guy, in order to get heat to be the ultimate evil, never says a word, but he just throws a child in fire. Wait, was or, that you know? Was that Rambo or that Rambo was just Last Rambo. Blood? That's not that's the one before that. Yeah, yeah the most recent yeah. reboot of Rambo. Sorry, there been no. So this many. one was we like two thousand nine or something or eight. Okay, no. But, so this is not the, the the first three which we will break down on another shows. No, just make a sure. Yeah, yeah. Rambo Four is actually a whole lot of fun in terms of just like being ridiculous, like violence. But <laughs> wow. Uh, but like the way they try to sell like the bad guy in that movie is they yeah. just like. Have him like murder women and like throw kids in fire just to make him like su- it's like it's like uh, using a rape scene just to make a bad guy worse. You know what I'm saying? Ew. That's just such a that's such uh, a terrible right. use of that sort of a thing, you know. Yeah. And um and so uh, with this though, this is one of those things where like this has a, a narrative purpose, you know, because his kids, his son Taro, is coming into this place. And is dedicated to snuffing out every person, including his father. Yeah. Because there's a threat to his throne now. And and so the whole point is it's not just to, like, kill men, women, and children. It's, no, but you all pose a threat. And this is the extent to which I will go to now save my place in the throne, even if it means killing the person that gave me that power. And so um, I, I totally see where you're going with it. And yeah, I think this is personally, this is like exempt uh, from that. Yeah. The other thing of, of going back to the comparison between stage and screen, um, the stage, the, William Shakespeare's King Lear is one of the hardest roles to play in, in theater because you have to be a, a male or a female. I'm happy to say I've seen females play King Lear. As I mentioned, I did a, a radio version of King Lear where it was just vocals. So you didn't have to do physicalities. Um, it is one of the most grueling characters in the history of theater because of a certain age and what that character has to go through. And um, in, in the case with this, and, and there's also, a, in, in, it's, it happens in Ron and also in King Lear, the, a beautiful relationship that, that, the father has with his court jester with his fool which has always been my if those who know me those who listen thank you for listening to public radio goodness the, the the court jester is my favorite persona because it is the one person who can speak honestly to the king without uh without punishment and that's that's kind of a great piece of power to have. Yeah. And there is in the second half of the film, the king and his fool wandering through the wandering through the forest, wandering through the woods. Um, and and they 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 care for each other. They love each other despite their stature. The fight that despite that one is there for merely amusement and one is one of the most powerful, powerful persons on the planet. Yeah. Um that should that should never be forgotten. Yeah, he's um, you know, Nakadai is also really interesting once, especially once you get to that point where they're wandering, uh, because his I, I want to say this, uh, the makeup that they use for Nakadai, because he's like fifty three or something at this yeah. point uh, in, in real life. My age. Ma- 
but he's made to look like fucking Methuselah. You know what I mean? Like he's like 900 years old. Yeah. Like he looks old, but it it almost looks like silent era, like the way that they do everything. But I kind of love this. My, my, My what I'm getting at is like this is something that you would use the same makeup. I feel like in theater where it's like someone in the nosebleeds can still see, oh, that's an old guy with sunken cheeks. And you know exactly, what I mean? Exactly. Exactly. And I think, you know, uh, of course, there is the Kabuki Theater style in Japan, which is extremely heightened, way more heightened than this film. Um, we, well, I've mentioned, we've mentioned already in the show about the heightened emotions of the acting. And it's, 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 I guess, American audiences, if you can think of this, and I mean this in a complimentary way, of melodrama. Um, yeah. I'll give you, I'll give a couple good examples of cinematic melodrama, Todd Haynes films and Douglas Sirk films, where everything is just a little more heightened, a little more pushed, not necessarily over the tie over the top, but everything's just pushed up a little bit more. And in, in Japanese theater, which we remember mentioned before, not just Kabuki, but in, in, uh, the bad sleep well, and in this one, um, and in some of the samurai films, it is just pushed up a little bit more. Um, but there's still it's still rooted that you could really relate to it as a member of the audience. Yeah, no, it, it, it is great. Um, and like I said, that, like that scene where uh, Taro uh, kind of takes over the fortress and is like murdering everyone. That scene almost feels much more grounded than everything else, too, for as like kind of crazy as it is. Like I said, you see the guy holding his own arm. You see all the fear on people's faces. You see the heartlessness from the the attackers. You see the uh, hopelessness in the great lord's face, but also even the blood. Like there's a lot of blood in the sequence, a lot of blood. And it doesn't look like bright red paint. It looks like blood, whereas everywhere else. (laughs) <laughs> you know, um, it looks like bright paint. You know what I mean? It's like that kind yep. of old, very old school kind of 60s vibe to me. Um, and there's a scene, though, that I really love. It's probably the goriest scene, yet they also don't show everything. And I won't say who or what, but there's a scene where there's a decapitation. You don't actually see the decapitation. Yep. Yeah. But it's awesome. It reminds me of Kill Bill or something because <laughs> the person gets decapitated and then it's just buckets of blood on the wall which is like so awesome because <laughs> i actually put in my notes i put decapitation lots of blood v cool <laughs> so there you go friends if you're if you're a tarantino fan and you haven't watched kurosawa or king lear here's your chance don't hesitate yeah um and then akamoto who did uh sort of doom uh i'm pretty sure that tarantino is a big fan of him as well yes. so watch the sort of doom he's it's so good Um, But I I don't even know what else to say about Ron, to be honest. I mean, this is one of those uh, movies where uh, I feel like you can just watch it. And regardless of how you feel about the content, I don't I feel like it's just undisputably masterful in terms of the way that it's created and within its context as well. And it tells a great story. And uh, the I mean, how you could pull together fourteen hundred uh like extras and Holy 200 shit. horses and get yeah. all those uniforms and armor and it all looks so good because another thing that i never understood that i understand now is in the same way that we have uh military ranks and on people's uh like uh jackets that they wear it will say mm-hmm. or on the lapels or whatever to say like a general and you can see like a certain number of stars or whatever the thing is um in feudal japan 
they would have these big helmets and they'd have this like crescent moon or they'd have like yep. this like line or these like two lines. And I never understood. It looks so silly to me because I never understood back in the day. Um, but now I realize that's like their ranking, right? Exactly. Like you can see at a distance, you can yep. see their ranks. And even that quality in this movie, the reason I bring that up is like just like all of those details, man. And just yeah. like these wide sweeping shots of like a hundred horsemen, like running around like a big open field. Uh, there's even a scene where Nakadai, uh, as as the great lord and his his fool, as you said, uh, are walking through this grassland. And the way the grassland is blowing, like all the grass is like is like pulled down because it's real tall grass and it's just like pushed down. And and the great lord's hair, of course, is he's crazy at this point. So his hair is yeah. just going wild. And man, that even that was like kind of like breathtaking to see just as a visual. There's there's a moment in that film I want to I, and I I'm sorry if I confuse these two because I think they happen both for similar reasons. Um, there is there is a moment in Ron where you see a, just a tall hill of grass, and and there's that thing of where did you find that? And if you're if you're a, if you're a, a cinema cynic like us, you think of Terrence Malick where a hand grazes over wheat or tall grass and blah, blah, blah. And it's, 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 you know, hypnotic and hopefully 70 minutes long, unlike his last few films. But, <laughs> but the story is they planted the grass so it would grow just so we could have that shot. I, I think it happened with Kurosawa. I know it definitely happened with Malik. But, but that's, yeah, just an example of everything is a natural thing. The extras are there. The costumes are there. The aspects of throwing arrows, whether it's through uh, special effects through the wall or you're actually shooting close to a goddamn actor, that stuff is natural. And man, you can you can never do that today with insurance companies in the United States. But you watch that as a as a moviegoer, whether it, it's almost like watching the gladiators fight. You're like, that's probably not safe, but fuck, man, that's awesome. <laughs> Sorry, I it mean, sounds like Chris Farley. I know. That's just... No, 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 no. It's 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 just great. I, I think this movie is real cool. I'm really glad that we got to watch these three. And I got to say, again, if you're not familiar with Toshiro Mifune or Tatsuya Nakadai, these are two actors Something that about you that. definitely familiarize yourself with because uh, they, I mean, they've done some of my favorite works. And I'll say a movie that I mentioned when we were talking about The Bad Sleep Well, one of uh, Kurosawa's other um noirs of sorts that uh, we'll talk about some other time i don't know if it'd be with you but whatever uh one of my favorites and i'm just throwing this out is just literally a name drop uh, or as you would say hold on while i pick up this name i dropped um it's uh high and low from 1963 yeah! all right if you if you know ron howard's film ransom here's his dad basically it, yeah, it's, this it's, is... the, it's the best kidnapping film i think ever made I think so. This is definitely very top Kurosawa. Uh, this is perfect. I mean, this is a five-star movie for me. This is uh, great. But I, I just want to say this, though. If you don't feel comfortable jumping into any of these three Kurosawas, if they feel a little too much, High and Low has been a starting point I've used with a lot of that and Yojimbo. Yojimbo is my samurai movie. Yeah. And High and Low was my non-samurai. And uh, I have had... I, I've literally never shown high and low to someone that didn't like it. I mean, people really can grab onto it. It feels modern. It feels right. Yeah. Uh, the story is phenomenal. Uh, if you feel uncomfortable jumping in, 
Start with high and low, I would say. I'm, I'm going to counter with that by saying, if, if it, I know it sounds like we're talking about a lot of action movies, and we are, but he also had non-action films. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the example with Akuru. I was in college when we had the films like Regarding Henry, Dying Young, The Doctor, where... If you're if you're if if uh, the Grim Reaper is knocking on your door, you automatically become a better person. Ikuru is the grandfather of that, but it's beautifully done, and it's one of Kurosawa's regular players. He's in some of the mention some of the films we've already mentioned, yeah. but it's a guy who finally looks at his post-war Japan existence. Things are going well. He is successful, and then when he finds out he's dying, it's why am I doing this? And if you pick up the uh, the DVD or Blu-ray of Akuru, it's an it's an aging man on a swing, and that kind of sums it up best of yeah. what what is he doing with himself and how is he going to end his life. So if you're not into sword and blood, here's here's a life affirming story that Kurosawa also made. Yeah, this is this is another one that um, I haven't shown very many people, um, but my friends who have seen it, this is one of their favorites. It's Takashi yep. Shimura, who is again one of the regular players. If that you've guy, seen or classic, heard about that guy, yeah, if you've seen um, even like a a, a a a trailer or a poster for Seven Samurai, if you haven't seen the movie, he's the bald leader. Yep. Um, he, of the for, group. I'm sorry for those in America. He's the he's the Yul Brenner. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so again, I, I can't stress enough. Uh, Akira is also a phenomenal. I mean, just really, I, that's one I need to rewatch because I haven't seen since way back. But yeah. the thing is, like, I loved it then, and I can only imagine being such a Bummerville guy that I will <laughs> like. I have to love it now because it's about a dude that finds out he has a terminal illness and is dying. I mean, this is like wild strawberries, Welcome but like Kurosawa, you know, Terminal General or Bummersville General. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Um, but anyways, yeah. So uh, again, I, I really encourage high and low if if you want to start somewhere. Akira is another great choice. Um, but you should. I mean, I I would recommend all of these. There are way too many, much like Hitchcock and I know. Kubrick um, and all those guys. I can Rashomon. Just- you should check out Rashomon because well, we we grew up in an era where everybody borrowed every sitcom borrowed the Rashomon story. It's your yeah. version, my version, and the truth. The goddamn Brady bunch did a Rashomon episode about who broke the vase in the house. I mean, yeah, the last duel is kind of a, yeah, came out last and, year and is like a, the a last version, duel, but yeah, you're right about that. Exactly. Yeah. So anyways, there, there, there's a lot to Kurosawa. I will be doing a Kurosawa marathon in the coming years. I'm waiting for an anniversary of sorts, uh, which kind of kills me. Cause I like, now I just want to watch all of them, but I'll get there this year's <laughs> Hitchcock. So uh, we'll, we'll get to that marathon soon, but Matthew, any final words about any of this Kurosawa stuff before we close up? God, watch Kurosawa. What are you waiting for? It's I, you know, I, I'm sitting on my front porch. I'm shaking my fist at clouds. By the way, clouds that are not CG. No, no offense, <laughs> Ang Lee. Yeah. Um, Man, real quick though, there are some great cloud shots in Ron. There's great stuff <laughs> if you want to see natural movies on my natural movie makers. And um, you know, you can get off my lawn or stay on my lawn or whatever, but. But uh, kind of give give Akira Kurosawa a shot, whether it's Samurai or Modern uh, or both or the Shakespeare trilogy that we've talked about. He's just a great filmmaker. Yeah, he's great. 
Um, and yeah, that pretty much wraps it up. We talked about Throne of Blood, The Bad Sleep Well, and Ron, the Shakespeare trilogy. Um, again, many more to come in the future. Uh, but what do you got? All on Criterion and <coughs> Criterion Blu-ray set, please. Blu-ray set, please. <laughs> Unfortunately, Ron's not on Criterion <gasps> yet because of Studio Canal, which is a European company that unfortunately took back several of their rights because they became a U.S. company as well. Uh, so, um, but 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 it is it isn't that the killer though. You're just like, dude, right? just get the one movie. This and a pain in the ass about it. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, uh, yeah, I, I encourage you to check out all these. Again, Throne of Blood is on HBO Max and the Criterion channel. Bad Sleep Wells on the Criterion channel. And you can rent Ron right now on Amazon. It's an HD version. Looks beautiful. Matthew, thank you so much, buddy. Thank you, Austin. All right. That was our show. I hope you enjoyed Matthew Sosie and I talking about Throne of Blood, The Bad Sleep Well, which is my favorite of the bunch. I surprisingly love that movie still. And 1985's Ron Kurosawa is just an absolute master. I can't wait to do a full-fledged marathon on him. It'd be really great. And it was really nice to actually knock out three of his movies now. Uh, the more I can do of that, the better, because he has a lot of movies that I would want to watch for a marathon. Um, next week, uh, I am planning on... Man, there's a whole lot going on. I'm going to have multiple episodes I can drop whenever, because I have all kinds of stuff happening for this podcast. Uh, but... Next week, I think Joe and I, uh, you know, in lieu of the, uh, not in lieu, rather, the uh, w- with the Academy Awards and stuff coming up, I think we're going to do our top five favorite Oscar winners, okay, because sometimes they get it right, and uh, very rarely, but sometimes they get it right, and uh, yeah, so we're going to do that, and I, I'm going to have, uh, and my, uh, she was actually my committee chair when I wrote, when I was writing my thesis, when I was studying film and stuff. Uh, her name is Ashley Donnelly. She's a professor at Ball State University, um, but she's also just a movie lover. We go way back. It'd be really fun to talk with her. And then, uh, yeah, we're, I'm going to have all kinds of cool guests. I'm going to have uh, Rick Jimenez from the bands This Is Hell and Extinction AD on to talk about movies soon. There's going to be so much. Uh, please keep an eye out for that. But, hey, for now, I'm tired. I'm getting out of here. I love you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Good luck. And take it easy. <laughs>